Our speaker tonight is uh, Pastor Ryan Martin. He's the pastor of Columbia Bill Baptist Church here in Lapeer County. Um, he attended Northland uh, Baptist Bible College where he got his bachelor's degree and then went on to uh, uh, get his master's and doctorate at uh, Central Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, his dissertation was on the theology of Jonathan Edwards. I would, I would, uh, sounds even fascinating. Uh, he's been uh, a pastor for over a decade. Um, another weighty responsibility he's had is being uh, a dad along and, and, uh, and joining with his wife Jennifer and raising four sons and two daughters. Uh, he has done some writing, and I assure you there's another book in there somewhere. When you raise four sons and two daughters, we, we have four sons and a daughter. So, And uh, they, they're still writing that book. So, We are so grateful that you would uh, come to minister to us, and we uh, are, are grateful for your faithfulness to God. Would you come? Thank you. Good evening. It's a real privilege and delight to be here, and thank you for giving up your own pastor tonight. A good old-fashioned pulpit swap, and I think uh, I think it's a good thing. I'm glad that our that the people of Columbiaville Baptist can sit underneath some good, faithful preaching of God's word, and it's good to know Pastor Shannon and Moses and uh, to be acquainted with them, to call them friends. And we're grateful for your church's concern and your prayers for us on occasion, which I know you do. Grateful for your testimony here in Lapeer County as we together serve the Lord. Want to take the liberty to invite you, if you're not doing anything this Saturday and there's no church activity going on here, uh, over at Columbiaville Baptist, we have, we're having our, a theology conference where we're learning from the great Baptist theologians. The guest speaker is Dr. David Saxon, who's a very gifted communicator from Maranatha Baptist University. The registration's only $25. You get a barbecue lunch if you come uh, with the great teaching, uh, but we ask that you register or let the church know. Just email the church and let us know that you'd like to come, but you're all invited. I'm not sure we'd have room for all of you, but... Uh, We'd love to have you come and join us for some good teaching and, and some good food and fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want, you, want to invite you tonight to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3 this evening. The great program of our eternal God throughout the ages has been to bring glory to himself. This is his great, his great desire more than anything else is that he would glorify himself. And we see this in several places in Scripture. This is the end of creation. It's the end for which he delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. Take, for example, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, where God says, to Moses, say therefore to my people Israel, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm 
and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God's plan in delivering Israel out of Egypt is so that they would know that he is God. Same theme in Exodus 9.14. Why did God send the plagues upon the Egyptians? From this time forth, God says, I will send all my plagues on you yourself, speaking to Pharaoh, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. God's plan and purpose in saving Israel out of Egypt and even in sending the judgment of the plagues upon the Egyptians was to glorify himself so that men and women would know whether they're Israelites in salvation or Egyptians in judgment that he is God and that there is none else. And what we're going to find tonight is that this same program, the same desire and purpose of God exists in you, in us, in churches of Jesus Christ today. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. I'm simply preaching on verses 20 and 21, but I'll I'll get a running head start as we hear Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work with us, within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray tonight that you would be glorified in our churches, the church that is First Baptist Church of Lapeer, Columbiaville Baptist Church of Columbiaville, and all the churches that dot the world over, the assemblies of believers of Jesus Christ, and give to us tonight to see a vision of your plan to bring glory to yourself in churches like ours so that we might, in concert with your heart, Love your glory and exalt your name and your mighty power at work in us. In Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. So the verses that are before us tonight, verses 20 and 21, and the, the first half of Ephesians. Ephesians can be divided into two halves, chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. This is the end of the first half of Ephesians. Paul began Ephesians, you might remember, with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Having begun with praise, 
He now brings the majestic vista, that is Ephesians 1 through 3, to a climactic end with praise. Verses 20 and 21 are not only Paul's end of the first half of Ephesians with a word of praise, but it's also the close of Paul's prayer here. He ends his prayer for the saints in Ephesus with praise. This is a doxology, verses 20 and 21. We call this a doxology. Doxology means word of praise or word of glory. In the Bible, a doxology is a concise, compact, structured expression ascribing explicit glory or praise to God. To give glory to God is to exalt God. And these verses, as I said, are as are a doxology. Even as it comes at the end of a prayer, it reminds us that our prayers should be shouldn't be mere catalogs of requests, but also moments of thanksgiving and praise to God. And we need to pause and we need to say those things in our prayers. But having sought God's grace in prayer in verses 14 through 19, Paul rightly praises God for all that he will do in answering those prayers that he is offering. I wish we had time to go through uh, verses 14 through 19 and to look at Paul's wonderful prayer for the Ephesians here, but but we barely have time to go through verses 20 and 21. As I said, this doxology fittingly ends the whole of chapters 1 through 3. He says in verse 20, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. If you know the themes that show up in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, those themes are God's grace in the church and his grace through Jesus Christ. So once again, it's fitting that he ends these these first three chapters in this way. The chief end of all creation is to give glory to God. This is God's chief end, is to glorify himself. The Bible presents God as one who is jealous for his own glory. Is it self-centered of God to prize his own glory above everything else? Well, I would say it is, it is not self-centered in, because uh, it's, 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 it would be wrong for God to be anything other than centered upon himself. For us to be self-centered is always out of balance because we're nothing. We're mortal men. For God to glorify himself and to seek his own glory is not being self-centered. It is being true to what is. If God didn't prize his own glory above all, then he would prize something else above all and something above himself. And nothing more is to be valued more than the glory of God. So to be sure, no other being is so worthy of praise as our triune God. And no one knows that truth better than God himself. So it is right and fitting that God desires his own glory to be glorified above everything else in the world. And to that end, I want you to see 
this, in this doxology, this word of praise, how God is glorifying himself today so that your own affections would be rightly drawn up to glorify God in the way and in the same manner that he is doing this in the world today. So first I want you to see the object of glory, the object of glory, and that is the almighty God. The object of glory in this passage is the almighty God. Paul says, now to him who is able. Later in verse 21, he connects the praise to the same hymn of verse 20, to him be glory. So that him is the one who is able. And Christian people give glory to God alone. Paul praises God here in this passage for his almighty power. We call this his omnipotence. Now to him who is able to do, Paul says, far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. He is able to do. Your God has infinite ability. God's ability is not just potential power. It is real, actual power because he does all that he wills. No one can stop God from doing anything he purposes. He does all that he purposes. Nothing, le- nothing is left undone. He does everything he wills. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God leaves nothing undone. The scriptures often praise God for his omnipotence. In fact, almighty is a common name for God. Sometimes he's simply called Our God is simply called the Almighty. Psalm 91, 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That's his his name there, Almighty. Because he is able to do all that he wills. In Genesis 17, 1, Yahweh appeared to Abraham saying, I am God Almighty. Almighty was an important name for Abraham to hear in Genesis 17. For God promised to do great things for Abraham. To give him a son and create a nation out of him. And though he was too old to sire children from a human perspective, God says, I am the Almighty. It doesn't matter what human perspectives are. I do all that I please. Abraham knew Yahweh to be a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that he asks or thought. The scriptures often teach us about the infinite power of God to do all that he wills. For example, Revelation 1.8, the end of the book, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And yet, even though the scriptures often describe God as Almighty, Paul's inspired way of describing that Almighty power here is particularly uniquely majestic. It's probably too many adjectives. But he says, not just that God is able to do, he says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can even ask or think. Despite the heights of human intellect, 
God can do and will do far more abundantly than mortals can conceive, can dream. The word for far more abundantly, that translated here, I'm using the ESV tonight, the word for far more abundantly takes the regular word abundantly and then adds two prepositions to the front of it in the original language to doubly stress the heights of God's power, even above abundance. So the most important Greek lexicon says of this word far more abundantly that it gives, quote, the highest form of comparison imaginable and suggests we translate it infinitely more than. And it's because God is able to do infinitely above our highest thoughts. Get your, get your thoughts cranked up as high as you can get them. God is able to do more than that. You can try to go higher. He's able to do more still. You can't conceive. And because of that truth, he is worthy of our worship and glory. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Tonight we prayed together. God is able to do infinitely above our prayer requests. Even our highest thoughts are not able to comprehend what he will do. These words come as the conclusion of Paul's prayer for God to lavish his spiritual power upon the Ephesian believers. And as Paul prayed for these specific matters, he knew that God could and would do far more than he could even pray. In fact, if you look up at verses 18 and 19, you might notice that Paul prays that the saints would be able to comprehend. That's what you think, right? Comprehend the love of Christ that, he says, surpasses knowledge. And now he prays that God would do far more than we even think. The bottom line is that God's power is not limited by your or my small, finite minds. Our asking or thinking will never exceed what God can do. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul cites Isaiah for a similar point. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, when God promised Abraham a son... Sarah couldn't imagine how great God's power was. So what did she do? You remember? She laughed. She couldn't even imagine that God would give her a son in her old age. This is one example from Scripture. Friends, you simply have no idea what God is able to do for you. In particular, you can't conceive now how wonderful eternal life will be, how glorious Christ's kingdom reign will be, how wonderful it will be to be with the eternal God in the new heavens and new earth, with the saints and angels, when sin and death are no, are no more, and every eye, the tears of every eye are wiped away. You can't imagine now. You can't get your mind that high. You don't know the half yet of what God is going to do for you. So if you think this is about, you know, praying for your bank account to get bigger, like I can't even imagine how much he's going to put in there tomorrow. 
That's, you're missing the point here, folks. This is, this is much bigger than that. Again, much more than you can even conceive. Because I can tell you, he could tenfold increase your bank account tomorrow, and that can't equal what lies in store for you through the grace of Jesus Christ for eternity to come. So the next time you enter the throne room of the King of Kings, the God of the universe, come big, because you can't overdo it. And this is, of course, not an invitation for you to ask amiss, as James says, James says, to spend it on your passions. But when you come seeking his grace and his will, when you seek the kinds of requests that Paul is praying here in this passage for people to comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, come with faith, nothing wavering, and know that your almighty God can do far more than you ask. John Newton wrote, In his great hymn, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Since he is a God of infinite power, he and he alone should be the object of our glory. This is the object of our glory. Now the reason for glory, and that is God's power in us. God's power to do infinitely above what we can ask or think is directed to us. That's what he's talking about here. It's not just power randomly on display, but it's power to us. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. It's not just that God has infinite power. His power is directed lovingly, savingly to us in Jesus Christ. It's God's power working in us that Paul especially gives God glory for here. In fact, this verse itself emphasizes God's power. You might have noticed this. There are three words that come right to the surface when you're looking for power words. You see the word able? That's, That's about power, what you're able to do. Then there's the word power. And then there's the word work. This is God's power at work in us. What have you, friend? What have you been able to contribute to your spiritual life in Jesus Christ? You know what the answer to that is? Zero. Everything you are and will be is of God's power in Christ. We could talk about how Paul has stressed God's power throughout the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, we see it in verse 19 when he prays again that God would make them know the immeasurable greatness, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. You hear all the power words there? You see, that's the power of the risen, ascended Son of God, the power that is his by right at the Father's right hand, a power over all creation, including Satan and the fallen angels, a power he will use to bring in his glorious kingdom and is now at work in us, believers in him through the Spirit. Chapters 2 and 3 are a wonderful description of God's power in us. Again, I can't stay there. I need to press on. But it is God's power in verse 16 in the immediate context whereby the Spirit has strengthened our inner being to love Christ and to comprehend 
the unknowable love of Christ. In chapter 4, think about chapter 4. After chapter 3, after the first half of Ephesians, Paul transitions to a great discourse of how we are to walk or live out or practically flesh out our calling in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've ever, yeah, I'm sure you've read Ephesians 4 through 6, but if you, if you take what Paul says in that, those chapters seriously, at times it can feel overwhelming. You mean as a husband, I need to love my wife as Christ loved the church? I need as a dad to bring up my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And on and on it goes. Like that's overwhelming at times. Well, it's not us, is it? It's God's power to work in us far above what we can even ask or think. And us here in verse 20, according to the power at work within us, that refers to believers, to those who know Jesus Christ by faith. He's not talking about just anybody here. He's talking to, about those who've acknowledged that they are sinners, that they're guilty sinners before God, that they deserve God's condemnation and judgment, and that their only hope is the precious precious shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And they have flown to Christ for refuge as as their only savior and put their faith in him alone for salvation. That's the us that he is talking about here. And we are the objects of God's power. When Paul says far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, that doesn't mean we have no idea of what God's power does for us. In fact, we do. But that I think what he means is that even when we hear of God's work in us, it's still far beyond anything we could imagine. We give glory to God because of his saving power is at work in us. Out of the riches of his glorious grace, God has made us the objects of his almighty new creation power in Christ. We have seen him working in each other. The other members of this church, members of my church, we see him at work. God's power is personal, and so we praise him. Think about it. All across this room, you are the us. You're the us, and you could see God's power at work if you'll open up your eyes and see it. Stop complaining about one another and see the fingerprints of God's power at work graciously in the lives of each other as the body of Christ. That's the reason for glory, God's power in us. The manner of glory is in Christ's church. Paul continues the doxology in verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. The two phrases, in the church and in Christ Jesus, are parallel. So what does it mean? be glory in the church. Well, you might say, well, every, every time we gather and worship, we're giving glory to God. That's true, but I don't think that's what Paul means here. Because then our Lord would also be giving glory to God. That doesn't seem to fit the context. I think it's better to see the church and Christ as distinct but interrelated places in which God glorifies his own almighty power, each in their own way. So both the church and Christ display God's glory because they're intricately linked. Christ founded the church upon himself. 
He's the church's chief cornerstone. He bought the church with his own precious blood. He has united the church together in his body and reconciled her to God. This is what Christ has done for the church. God has made the church what it is through Christ. Churches magnify Christ as the mediator of God's glory and power on earth. The glory of God and the glory of Christ and the local church are all interwoven which is really amazing to think about because when you think about your local church, no church is perfect. Uh, you guys could fill me in later if you are, but no church is perfect. We, but we have nothing to glory in. That's the whole point here. All that we are comes from our dear Savior and his blood to the glory and praise of God. What we glory in is Christ. But Paul, that God gets glory in the church means that the divine power Paul is talking about in verse 20 then is not just any power, but is saving power in Christ. God has done this to glorify himself. He has saved us in Christ to glorify himself. He designed us and poured out his spiritual power upon us to make us a place where he shows his glory to the world. God dwells in our midst. In every local church, God dwells there. We are his temple. You know what a temple is? A temple is a place, not only where God dwells, but it's where his glory dwells in the Old Testament. Does Paul call the church a temple in the book of Ephesians? He does in chapter 2. In Exodus, God saved Israel with the saving power so they might know his glory. And with the coming of Messiah in this epoch, the church, in the church, the glory of God is on display. God founded local churches in Christ to save his, his, to display his saving power. And so when you see that little phrase within us in verse 20, you must not think only of yourself, but also of the church. The power at work within us is all that God does for us that makes us saints and works in us corporately and individually as God's people. It's not just me, us. It's us, as a, you as a local church, in my local church, he's at work in. Don't just make it personal. Make it corporate, that us. Because he is at work to glorify himself in the church. Listen, friends, the church lies at the core of God's purposes in this age. We already talked about how God loves his own glory supremely. God's chief end for all creation is to bring glory to himself. His sovereign will in this era is to glorify his own saving power and grace then in assemblies of Christ's holy ones. The church is at the heart of God's purpose to glorify himself. I stress this because we don't often see the glory of God in churches. But we're seeing in this passage, this is what God intends with churches. I want to create institutions where my glory will be on display. And I will do it through my son and his shed blood, founded upon him as the chief cornerstone. And so to all those, including professing Christians who disparage and downplay and avoid local churches, let them read this inspired word and be confronted by it. Now, I realize I'm speaking to the preaching to probably literally the choir 
some of you, and you are here on a Sunday night. I'm going to say this anyway. There are people who minimize the local church. This passage blows that up. God has created the church as the place where his power and grace in Christ will be glorified in this age. You can't claim to want to see Christ glorified and minimize the church. You can't claim to love God or his glory and eject yourself from a local church. All professing Christians who have minimized the covenanted assemblies of saints that are Christ's churches, and especially their own particular church of Christ, should repent. This passage is an immediate call to align our own view of the church with God's view of the church. If it's too low, you need to correct your sights. This passage shows why believers who are not committed to some particular orderly church of Christ are in disobedience to Christ. By sidelining the church, they are sidelining Christ and the glory of God. If we say we want to glorify God, if we say we are disciples of Jesus, if we say we want to obey our Lord, we will give up ourselves to some particular and orderly church of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. We will align to churches over pastors. We will resist the urge to church hop. If someone willfully refuses to attend and join a biblical church, they disobey Christ. It is passages like this one that lead churches to include language in their church covenants. Do you have a church covenant? It's passages like this one that lead churches to have language in their church covenants that the members will give their church a sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin. Why? Because this is the place where God's glory dwells, where God is at work, where he is powerfully displaying his almighty power for his glory in this age. If you want to bring glory to God, you will seek to see your church thrive. This will be what you're all about. Why? Why? Because this is what God is all about, to bring himself glory in this age. If you want to see Christ magnified, you will be all about your local church. Indeed, we may all seek to value, may we all seek to value the church the way God does. Look at what God is doing in the church. Are you emphasizing the church like God does? If the eyes of faith, if with the eyes of faith you were to look around at this covenanted community of believers, you would, like Paul, surely say, God is glorifying himself here in Christ, among this fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. But you have to have the eyes of faith to see this. This isn't worldly glory. This isn't the way things normally work in in the United States of America. This is the way God works for ages upon the church of Jesus Christ. You will see, if you have the eyes of faith, you'll see here in the saints evidence of God's almighty power at work, even in ways I could never have expected. Do you see this among your brothers and sisters in their devotion to the Lord, in their commitment to the body of Christ, in their growth spiritually? Well, the length of glory is forever. This is the final point 
The length of glory is forever. Paul concludes, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What he's saying here is that the glory of God in the church will extend throughout the generations of human life until those generations no longer continue and from there into the ages of the ages, the forever and ever of eternity. And even after this age, when God's stewardship of the ages transitions again, he will always be glorifying himself in the church. After this age and the day of the Lord begins into the glorious millennial kingdom and then the unending day of the glorious eternal state, the church will always be the trophy of God's grace in Jesus Christ, bringing glory to the eternal God through Christ the mediator. Thus far, you see, we've only just begun to see the unimaginable power of the Almighty God in Christ. You can't even imagine how great it's going to be. The great constant of all the ages has been the un eternal, unchanging glory of God. It happened before creation in the mystery of the eternal God in infinity past, eternity past. God began to glorify himself by creating the world and then even through the fall, by promising a deliverer and restoration of creation. And then through Noah and Abraham and then Israel. And now, where is he at work? He's, working, he's at work here. First Baptist Church of Lapeer, that's where he's at work. You, you are part of God's great plan for the ages. And this is why we give him glory. This is how we... Re how he is restoring his purpose in creation to bring himself glory. And it'd be truly tragic to be a profound recipient of this gracious power and the ignorant and ungrateful and dumb in response. If God has created us, his church, to be currently the primary place on earth where he is glorified, then we should embrace God's program, submit ourselves to God's church, and give glory to God as we see him at work in and through us since the day of Pentecost. Particular assemblies of the saints of Jesus Christ scattered all over the world in innumerable languages and dialects in hundreds of thousands of places have been regularly gathering for generations. Sometimes they gather indoors, sometimes outdoors for fear of persecution, sometimes in storefronts, sometimes in homes, sometimes in ornate, beautiful buildings. Each week they gather with devotion to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. And it is in these churches, for generations and gen after generation, God has been exercising his glorious power in Christ, saving a people for himself, proclaiming his truth, and thus bringing himself glory. Here, the Almighty God has been powerfully at work, doing more than what the human mind can even think. In the shadows of its sinful blindness, the world fails to see the glory of God in the gatherings of these redeemed sinners. They think nothing of the church. They brush it aside. They look for ways to disparage it. Let us, though, be people who give God glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. I pray, Father, tonight that by your grace you would give us to love Christ, to understand and to know the love of Christ for us that, is, that surpasses knowledge, 
and to be people who give you glory, to see your glory at work in the church, to understand the primary place that you put the church in, in your program in this age. Let us never disparage the church. Let us work, I pray, for her prosperity, for your glory, so that we might see you at work in us and in each other's lives to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ forever and ever.